Get your Bibles ready. We're going to be here toward the back. But as we begin this day, I've got a kind of a quick little game here for us. Easy game. Word association. So, all you Bible scholars, Sunday school students, sitters of under many sermons along the way, when I say the word shepherd, what's your most memorable Bible passage that comes to your mind? Ah, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. Any John 10s out there? The Lord, I am the good shepherd, Jesus says. There you go. Faith. When I say the word faith, any particular passage passages come to mind. What's that? Comes by hearing, which is in Romans. Faith comes by hearings. Anybody else? Hebrews 11, the hall of faith. The, by faith, um, all these saints of old lived. When I say light, what passages come to mind? Come on, city light. These got to roll now. I am the light of the world, John 8, Jesus. In the beginning, when God said, let there be light, um, Genesis 1. First John 1, come on now. Look at us, we're actually talking back and forth now. Look, did I, I just now sucked you in to dialogical preaching here. When I say love, what passages come to mind? John 3.16, for God so loved the world. 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind. I would pray that by the end of this sermon, 1 John 4 is one of those that come to your mind first when you hear love. That your word association of the word love quickly brings forth 1 John 4. Love is the repeated command. It's a repeated theme in 1 John. The English Protestant reformer, William Tyndale, his best known for his English translation of the Bible, says of today's passage, John sings his old song again, the song of love. This is the third time in this letter that John will write of God's love for us and our love for one another. But when we speak of love in the church, the world is also speaking of love. And so we're both using the same words, and words have meaning. Here's a recent commercial from Google. It's classical music kind of sets, and it's just the, the screen is just the search bar, and things are being typed out and then erased and so forth. And so you have pandemic family activities, and then pandemic gets erased out, and you're searching for family, online church, and then online is erased. And at the end of these many phrases, it says, get back to what you love. So what is love? Is love just a desire for life experiences, back to normal? What is love? Because I want to know what love is. Come on, Tom. I gave you foreigner there, brother. Last week you get you, last week I gave you the police and this. I want to know what love is. For the sociologist or the psychologist, love is a relational attachment from physical, emotional, sexual, intellectual, social bonds, attachments. For the neuroscientist, what is love? They got you under machines and looking at how things light up and biochemical responses to different stimuli. 
your dopamine, your oxytocin, your vasopressin, all these brain chemicals. What's going on when you feel love? What is love for the evolutionist? Survival of the fittest. I, want, I love what I want, and I want to get mine and then pass my DNA off to another generation. I want me to survive, is the evolutionist. Is love just a mere emotion? Is it just a biochemical response? No. God is love. God loves us, and so we love one another. And so let's sing this tune one more time. Turn with me to 1 John 4. We'll begin in verse 7 and go all the way through to the end of this chapter. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not Love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the father has sent his son to be the savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe that the love of God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment. Because as he is also Are we in this world? There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Derek, I think you've already preached that. I know. We, we are repeating this theme. And John is going to continue to sing this tune through this letter and his love for the church. In this letter, there have been several tests of faith. Um, especially beginning in chapter 2, there are different tests of faith. How can we truly know that we are in the faith? Do you really know that God knows you? 
Do you really know that you're saved? There's the doctrinal test, what we believe. And in chapter 2, John says this, whoever confesses the Son of God, or whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Chapter 4, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. What you believe will show whether you are in the faith. But there's also a moral test, an ethical test, how we live. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Chapter 3, do you remember this? No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. There's a moral test to whether we're in the faith. Doctrinal test, what we believe. There's a moral test of how we live. But all the way through this letter, there's a relational test. How do we love? These three tests have to be held together. Is one greater than the others? You can't take one away and still have faithfulness. Because if you, orthodoxy, what we believe, John says this, if you don't believe the truth of Jesus, you're of the Antichrist. Those are strong words. If you don't believe who Jesus is revealed to be in the scriptures, you're the Antichrist. Our orthopraxy, how we live, right living, John says if you don't follow the way of Jesus, you're of the devil. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Doctrine and morality are important. But without love, they are nothing. The fundamentalist will believe the right thing, but apart from love, it means nothing. The legalist will do all the right living, but apart from love, it means nothing. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 will say, you can speak like angels, you can live like saints, but apart from love, it's just noisy, it's just glanging symbols. It's nothing. Faith, hope, and love. Love is the greatest. What is our greatest witness to this world? Our right doctrine? Our right living? We have to have those in increasing measures. But by this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. Love is the greatest. Love binds everything together in perfect harmony, the scriptures say. And in this, these verses today, for our consideration today, how is love made manifest to us? And then how is love perfected among us, in us? So those are the two movements we're going to go through today in this longer passage. Look with me from verses 7 to 11. And I'm going to break it this way, even though my translation breaks it at verse 12. The command to love one another. Look at verses 7 and 11. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. John is saying the same thing in verse 7 and in verse 11, maybe just a different order there, but it's the same three phrases. Beloved, God's loved us, love one another. Now, the grammarians, that's called a chiastic 
inclusio. It's kind of you're just wrapping this section with two bookends. They're the same thing. They're saying the same things, and it's bookended there of love. This is the truth. God loves us. And I've told you in previous weeks, your biggest struggle, perhaps in life, is going to understand God's love for you. To doubt God's love for you. I don't get God's grace from me. I really don't. I, it, I'm over, it is amazing. If it becomes so familiar and like I indebted to, I'm, it, I deserve God's I don't understand God's love. This passage will help us in that. And then we're to love one another. Indeed and in truth with affection. Do you love our church family? Are they beloved? Because that's what John, that's how he speaks to the church. You're my beloved. I love you. I know we're family. Family's family. It's dysfunctional. It's you, beefs and offenses and such. It's family. We love. Why do we love? So in between these bookends, there's two reasons we need to love. God's character and God's gift. Look with me in verse 7 and 8. God's character. Why ought we love? Ought to love one another. Because love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. If you don't love, you don't know God. Because God is love. It's his character. How do we sum... Here's another pop quiz. I'm just in my teacher mode today. Take the Old Testament, all these hundreds of commandments. How do you sum it down? Is there any, can we just kind of give one answer for all those commandments? And the answer is love. It's, no, it's tease out, love, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. But it's love. Love is the greatest, love God, your relationship to God and your relationship to others. Let it be love. Love is a relational term. Not mere affection, though that is there, but it's commitment to one another. So let me ask you this. How can God be love? Come on, we're good monotheists. We believe that God is one. Here, O City Light, the Lord our God is one. And love is a relational term. So if God is one, but love is relational, I want to know, when did love come around? Is love a product of creation? Did God start to love when he had someone to love? Say us. He created us and now he has an object to love. He loved his creation. He saw it was very good. But we were made in his image and could love back. Is that what we confess? That love is created because it's relational. No, no. Love is not dependent upon us. God does not need us. Let's get over ourselves. He doesn't need us. He loves us because God is love. And love is eternal because God himself is triune. God is trinity. Now this book. He's three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, 
One God. Derek explained that so it makes sense. I can't. I just got to declare it. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. This is the revelation of Scripture. God is triune, and he's one. And so forever into eternity past and forever because of God's own existence, his own essence, love is an attribute of God. It's his character. The Father has forever loved the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Son has forever loved the Father and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has forever loved the Son and Holy Spirit, or the Son and the Father. So I know, Derek, I'm just here. I'm just trying to get through the week. Get me a pick-me-up. Tell me what to do. I'm on a pit stop here. And my pit stop is, think on God. Have you just ever thought about God, his attributes, his character? Just who God is. Not just what we need to do next. Who God is. And we're to love one another because God is love. Verse 8, God is love. This is a favorite Bible verse of non-Christians. God is love. Why is this their favorite Bible verse? Because it's an appeal to non-judgmentalism. Don't judge me and my beliefs and my practices. God's love. You said God's love. So God loves me who I am. God is love. You love me as I am. Yeah. I love you. You're created by God. You're an image bearer of God. But God just didn't love me as I am in my sin. He doesn't love We're So what's wrong with this? It's what's defining love. Does God's character define love or do our sensibilities define love? Because if our sensibilities define love, that definition will change. Year to year, generation to generation. Love is a character attribute of God. Not the only one. God does not just love everything because God hates as well. God hates sin. God hates evil. God is holy. God is righteous. God is just. God judges sin and evil. And God is love. We're to love one another because God is love. Let me say it this way. If you're loving someone according to their sensibilities, to their definition of love, and not according to God's eternal character, you're not actually loving. We need to love other people as God has so loved us. And how does God love us? According to his character. Now let me pause here, and I'm not the wordsmith that I'm Pastor Christian is. But there are different words for love in the scriptures. If you don't know God, you can't love. Well, I know non-Christians who love. What kind of love is that? Because this word here is agape. And there are other words, philia and um, eros. There's friendship love, affection of like philia. And then there's eros, which is romantic love. This is agape love. Agape is not of human origin. It's from divine gift. It's not a feeling, it's self-sacrificing commitment. Agape is God's love, his character demonstrated, manifested. And only those born of God know agape love. Because this is God's character, this is God's gift. Which brings us to verses 9, 10, and 11. God's gift. Why ought we to love one another? Because his love was made manifest among us. 
He sent His Son into the world. This is how God so loves us. Jesus didn't come into the world just in word and talk, but in deed and in truth. Yes, Jesus proclaimed the kingdom. Yes, Jesus called disciples. Yes, Jesus ministered to the outcasts. Yes, Jesus healed the sick. But for all those good things that Jesus did, it doesn't save. Had to be another demonstration of love to actually bring about salvation. Because we are sinners. Dare I say in the hands of an angry God? Because he does have zeal and anger towards sin and evil. Do you believe this? Because the question I then ask is, how then are we saved? If you're not a sinner, John's already smacked you in the first chapter and said you're a liar. But if you just kind of jettisoned here into chapter 4, if you don't think you're without sin, then you've committed the pride, which is chief among all. Jesus shows us a life full of grace and truth. But are we living up to his example just by our own will? We are not saved by Jesus' example in life. We're saved by his sacrifice and death. Jesus was sent to be the propitiation for our sins. If you're in the NIV, it says atoning sacrifice. I like that as well. Atoning sacrifice, propitiation for our sins, because God is holy and just. He can't just pull up a rug and sweep our sin under the rug. It's there. It has to be judged if he's going to be just and righteous. And at the very same time, God is loving and merciful. I mean, if that was us, we'd be so conflicted. Like, I don't, I hate that, but like I'm loving. And, but imagine, think on God. He both hates sin and he's loving people in his image. So that he sent his son to be our substitute, to sacrifice himself in judgment for our sin. So it's always front and center. The cross is the manifestation of God's love in satisfaction of God's justice. There's no sweeping away the sin that we have had and will continue to do. It's not swept away. It's nailed to a sinless sacrifice, a perfect substitute. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. How? To die for us, to take our place. Now, let's be honest. Some of you may be thinking this, but maybe you're too far removed to even confess it anymore. Derek, this sounds like paganism. Derek, this sounds like an angry deity who's requiring a sacrifice to propitiate his wrath. Derek, I've heard some have even called it divine child abuse. Derek, is it time to just move along and and progress from this doctrine of substitutionary atonement? Is there a better way to understand or express God's love? In a book not too many years ago, The Lost Message of Jesus, the authors write this. Understandably, both people inside and outside the church have found this twisted teaching of the cross morally dubious and a huge barrier to faith. 
Deeper than that, however, is such a concept that stands in total contradiction to the statement that God is love. If the cross is a personal act of violence perpetuated by God towards humankind, but born by his son, then it makes a mockery of Jesus' own teaching to love your enemies and to refuse to pay evil with evil. I told you about wanting to slap theologians last week, right? So my son called me on Friday. And he just said, Dad, can we talk? Just text. Are you available to chat? And he's going, he had a, a one o'clock interview, pro, he had another one o'clock interview with a company that he's maybe getting on-ramped with. Maybe. And so I thought it was going to be about this. So I get out of an 11 or 9.30 meeting and I get into a 12 o'clock noontime call with my son. And you know what we talked about? Substitutionary atonement. My son was asking about substitutionary atonement. Because his bride, his bride-to-be and my future daughter-in-law is taking a class now and is reading a book and I already preached at her last week about test the spirits and don't believe everything in her Christian book. And it didn't set well because the author of her book that she's reading for her class was just saying, let's get rid of substitutionary atonement. And I'm like, I had just been here, just sermon writing. I'm like, Lord, what are you doing? And I'm going to tell you, I have questions for you, if you think that we just need to move on from substitutionary atonement. I have some questions. Why did Jesus go to the cross? Like, why for? Well, he just, he wants to identify with our suffering. He wants to show us how far he will go to love us. What a noble example we have. Is that a satisfactory answer for you? What does the cross express? Well, this shows us the love of God for us. Is that all? It is, yes, that. Anything else? What does the cross accomplish? A question I have for you. Is it just inspiration? Are you just inspired to, to remember Christ's own son crucified on the cross? Does this inspire you? Or is it save? My question is, how then are we saved from our sin if we don't have a substitute or a sacrifice for our sin? Tell me how that works. The cross does many things. Colossians 2, this is where Christ is victorious, victorious over evil powers, over the principalities. This is ransom for us. He purchases, we sang it before, he purchases us. But it is also substitutionary atonement. And in this church, as we're trying to be family together, and there's many things that we hold in open-handed, like, all right, well, cool, let's, let's talk and debate and chat about that. Substitutionary atonement is a closed-handed issue for me. I will, not, I will grip it, and you can try to pry it from my hands, but all this garbage that's being put out by reputable publishers, Zondervan, IVP, it's garbage, and it's confusing the church and stripping us from the power of our salvation. Is this paganism? No, paganism is us trying to appease some temperamental God. You know what Christianity is? It's God coming to save us. In the death of his son, his initiative. 
For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Jesus is not an abuse victim. So don't try to rework the atonement so you can better counsel people by taking away the bloodiness of this. He's not an abuse victim. He's not just a noble example. He's a willing sacrifice and he's a loving savior. And for those who claim that Christ's substitutionary atonement is an embarrassing or offensive doctrine, I ask you to repent. For the for the good of your salvation, just repent. If we deny that Christ died on the cross for our sin, then we're believing a false teaching. We need to come again to believe the true gospel. God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him he might become the righteousness of God. I'm excited because at the end of this month, I get to stand up here with my daughter or my future daughter-in-law and my, my son, officiate their wedding, and I'm excited because they're testing the spirits. And then on a random Friday afternoon, I'm in a conversation with my son about substitutionary atonement, even while he's trying to prepare for just the daily things of life. God is so good. Jesus is the love of God manifest to us. And because God has so loved us, we also ought to love one another. A brother in, in England writes this, Disciples are to be lovers. This is the test of whether or not they have known Jesus. Cross love, how we understand the cross, is the primary dynamic test of whether or not we understood the gospel word and experienced its power. It is our cross love for one another that proclaims the truth of the gospel to a watching and skeptical world. Our love for one another to the extent that it imitates and conforms to cross love, the cross love of Jesus, this is most evangelistic. We cannot be worshipers of God and witnesses to Christ if we don't love one another. That's what John's saying here. And so I asked you a couple weeks ago, is there a fellow Christian that you're having a hard time loving, even here in this assembly? Don't try to just do better, try harder. We need to look upon Christ and realize how much he's loved us so that we can then love them. But how can we do this? This is how love is manifest to us. It's Christ come to us. How is now love perfected in us? Come to verse 12. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. The phrasing here echoes the prologue of John's gospel. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's hand, but he has made him known. God is spirit, and we cannot see God. And yet there were some that did. This is, I, I, but we're more blessed. We've not seen, and we believe, and we're more blessed. But there were those who saw God in the flesh. That which was from the beginning which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. This life was made manifest, and we have seen it, John says, to begin this letter. Jesus is God's manifest presence to us. The fullness of the deity bodily dwelling, the word become flesh. But Jesus is resurrected from the dead. Jesus is now ascended into heaven. 
My question is, does God manifest his presence still today? Where and how? Here is the history of God's manifest presence. In the garden, before sin, it talks about him walking with Adam and Eve in the garden, having communion. His manifest presence was actually in creation there because he's walking with them. Sin comes in the world and there's a separation we feel. We're kind of locked out. We're evicted from the garden. So how does God, God's everywhere, but how does he manifest his presence to us? Well, there's an angel Lord that will show up and sometimes even like wrestle you like with Jacob. There, there's a burning bush that doesn't, it's, it's burning, but it's not being consumed. There's Mount Sinai that's shaking with thunders and light. This is theophanies. These, these appearances of God's manifest presence. This now even then gets localized into a tabernacle that in covenant with God, they carry around and it's God's manifest presence with his people. Pillar of fire by night and cloud by day and he's with his people, manifest presence. The tabernacle unto the temple there in Jerusalem. Yeah, but see that thing? Tear that down, it'll be rebuilt in three days. What, Jesus? Well, yeah, this is where we had God's manifest presence here in the temple. No, no, no. No, when his temple gets torn down, it'll, get be, it'll be rebuilt in three days. Because the manifest presence of God was no longer in architecture, it was in a person. The manifest presence of God was actually God himself with us, Christ. But I just asked you, Christ has now ascended into heaven where is God's manifest presence now? Where, who is the temple of the Holy Spirit now? Thank you. Come on, we're going to get used to it. Maybe we're going to start talking more. I thank you that you said church and not just Christian. It's not just an individual believer. It's the church. Because this is how the New Testament writers see the church. Our love is expressed as a church, loving one another, praying for one another, serving one another, teaching one another, forgiving one another, bearing one another's burdens, worshiping together. What does Jesus say? For where two or three or more are gathered, in my name, there I am among them. Now, that doesn't mean that when you're by yourself and you're a believer, that you're abandoned by God. God is with you. There's an indwelling spirit. There's something I don't think we've captured it yet about the church. We're trying to reform so much against Catholic church that we're just like, but we've become too, we've protested too much into our individualism. Especially in the American church. We're, it's individualistic. It's me and Jesus. I say a prayer. I'm good. So what's your view of the church? Is it an optional add-on? Is it like value-sized faith? Like, I'll take, I'll take the number two, but value-size that up for me? Or is it an essential expression of the faith? City lighters, our life and our love together is essential. This is not a religious rite we're doing. This is not just for our felt needs, our relational needs. This is how God finds, God's love finds its fulfillment on earth in the life and love of the church. Jesus loves me, this I know, the Bible tells me so, but Jesus loves us. Jesus loves us. And so we, 
We need to realize this and then sing of how Jesus loves us, perfects his love in us. How can we be sure that God is abiding with us and that his love is perfected in us? Now, when I say this word perfected, this is not like we get to a point of perfection. Even as Tabby prayed, we're not like, Lord, are you going to finally get us to this perfectionism? It's like he sees us perfect in Christ. He sees our life beginning to end. We are perfect in Christ, but we're now living this out into the life of the Spirit. And we're being changed by change from one glory to another to be conformed more to the image of Christ. It's not a flawless life. It's unto a mature life. And there's three assurances here in these verses. Look at verse 13. How can you know that God abides with us? Verse 13, he gives us his spirit. We have the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. We've not been abandoned or orphaned. We've got an advocate, a helper, comforter. Wanted to lead us into all truth. The Spirit is with us now. Right now. And we're like, we're praying, come Lord Jesus. And the Spirit's like, I'm right here with you. And I'm glorifying Jesus. I'm lifting Jesus high. And that's to be the glory of the Father. Because that's what the Spirit does. Is forever love the Son and the Father. But the Spirit is with us now. Oh, I wish I could just walk with Jesus. It'd be great. But these are greater works now being done. Verses 14 and 15. How do we know that God is abiding with us? Our confession. Do you testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world? Verse 15. Do you confess that Jesus is the Son of God? If you've answered yes to the two above questions, then God abides in us and, he, and we with him. Verse 17. What other assurance do we have because we have confidence for the day of judgment. We're like, bring it, please. Hasten. Hosanna, please. Lord, come. We don't fear death. We're going to miss loved ones. And there's uncertainty even in the frailty of our humanity that we will feel even in those moments. But we look forward to being with Jesus in the heavenly glory. We don't fear the day of Christ's return. We look forward to being with him in new creation forever. There's no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. These are the assurances. Are you assured that God is with us? And God now, or John now ends this section with the evidence of God's. These are the assurances. Here's the evidence. We love. We just love one another. At 1 John 4.18, we love because he first loved us. Such a simple verse, easy to memorize. If you want to like just I, I memorize a verse a day, 1 John 4.18. And it says so much in there. On that Friday, before I could get to my son's phone call, I was meeting with another couple here in church. Uh, let me see. I don't always look around as best I should. Just a nervous preacher preaching up the wall. It's Darren and Mallory Mosher. Um, Stacy and I were meeting with them to catch up. This is a couple. The crazy story is they lived in New York City, started listening to our podcast, and moved to Roanoke, Virginia. It's crazy. And um, we were meeting together, and we had breakfast together, which led all the way up to lunch. And I asked Darren to pray. Like, Darren, just pray for us as we get going. I mean, Darren was like, pray, like, Lord, I, he's like, Spirit, please be, pr I mean, we're just in a restaurant, like, 
the Spirit be present with us. Help us to be the church one to another. Help us to be vulnerable. Accomplish your purposes in this conversation. I'm like, I'm like worshiping. I got an omelet in front of me. I'm like worshiping because of Darren's prayer. A guy I've known for a year now. And we got chatting and catching up on life and I asked him like, how has the Lord most shaped you in this past year? How is the Lord leading you into this next season of life? Because the Lord has done a lot. They've gotten married. They've moved to a new state. Um, she's quit her job. They're trying to figure out what's next. Always at the mission. Chatted a lot about that. And, and I took pride because I've been told by my kids that Darren always asks these probing questions that makes them speechless. Like Darren's always going to kind of look you in the eye and like ask you a question and make you think, oh, that was a deep question. Let me think about that. And I took pride that I got him speechless there for a second. And Darren's just sitting there. What has the Lord done? And he brought it down to the simplicity of, he just says, I'm just still overwhelmed by the simplicity of Jesus' commands, which is how the law and the prophets are just simplified into love, to love God and love one another. And he brought it down to like, he's very, he brought it down to like a singular folks. He said, I just relationships. I want everything. I'm like asking like what their plans are. And he just, he's giving me vision for life. I want to do everything I do in relationships unto discipleship. And that's a vision for life. Wherever you go, that works. Whatever the Lord may lead you into, relationships unto life, to unto discipleship, is what we're called to do. And then Mallory, and we talked about stuff and family and all this stuff, and she said, I just want to love well. The people, I want them to feel loved in my interactions and care for them. It's really that simple, but it's really that hard too for us. We love others because God loves us. Relationships in discipleship after Christ, loving well, both in deed and in truth. Man, I'm just, I'm humbled. Like, the Lord just blew me away on my Fridays. I'm just trying to wrap a week, and I'm coming out of this conversation to then a phone call about substitutionary atonement. I'm like, Lord, have your way, please. You're doing something new in this day, and let us discern the working of your Spirit. Give us wisdom for this day that we live in, and let us love well. Let us live in the relationships that we have under discipleship, under Christ. How do we do this? We've got to remember how God's love was made manifest to us. It's Jesus' atoning sacrifice. His atoning sacrifice. So precious. And realize that God's perfecting. He's perfected his love in us. His spirit is here. He's abiding with us. He, and we in him. What does that really mean? Let's pray. Let's pray that we get it.